Romans chapter 7, verse 13 through verse 25. Let's stand together as we read God's Word, shall we? And it says this, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that, that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Father, we thank you for this text. I ask that you would help me preach it to today, that you would Give me freedom and passion and clarity in my words that I would preach your word, not simply my own ideas, that you would open our hearts to be recipients of this truth, that you would shape us, mold us, fashion us according to your likeness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to preach this morning on this text, and I'm going to title my sermon, Freed to Fight. Freed to fight. National Geographic magazine a number of years ago had released this article on the Alaskan bull moose. And they talked about how these, these, this bull moose fights with other males, literally going head to head to see who is the most dominant. They fight with their antlers, and the one whose antlers breaks loses. The, the fight then, which happens in the fall, is really won during the summer when the moose eats and eats and eats and gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Somebody put it this way. They said, spiritual battles await and Satan will choose a season to attack. We will be victorious Or we may fall. Much depends on what we do now. 
your battle in the future is won now. He called it the bull moose principle. He said, enduring faith, strength, and wisdom for trials are best developed before they're needed. Now, do you know, church, that we are freed? And for all of those Christ has set free, they are free indeed. Yet, don't you know that we also live in a world where we still have sin and we still have temptation, meaning we are not freed from the presence of sin, but rather we are freed from the power of sin. So like a, a prisoner unshackled by the warrior king, we are freed, but the battle is still raging. And so we are freed to join our victorious warrior king in the fight, to pick up arms and to fight. We are freed to fight. Are you with me? Now, sin wants to dominate and destroy you. And if you are not ready to fight Satan or his strategies, if we are not ready to fight our sinful desires, we will be consumed by the fire of sin. But the question is this, how do we fight? How do we fight our sinful temptations? How do we prepare ourselves to fight these battles? Is it through motivational speeches? Is it through law-based morality? Is it through a pick-yourselves-up-by-the-bootstraps sanctification? My answer is no to all of those. Romans chapter 7 shows us that we are first free to fight. It's this beautiful, but at the same time kind of heart-wrenching, passionate, personal confession of Paul's own struggle against sin. Now this morning, I don't just simply want to show you that you struggle with sin. I think you already know that. This morning, I want to show you how we are freed to fight in the struggle. Four things I want to show you from this text. I'll just give them to you right now. Number one, how do we fight? Accept our responsibility. Number two, number two, know our, uh, let me find my second one, know our, uh, admit our instability. Number three, know our inability. And number four, know our Savior. Let me just work through these. Number one, accept our responsibility. So this passage begins in verse 13 with yet another question. Paul has been asking this series of antagonistic questions. Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? Uh, uh, is the law bad? Is it sinful? Uh, uh, what, what then is our relationship to the law? Uh, Paul has been working through this concept of law versus grace. As we have been studying through the book of Revelation, what we've discovered is that we are all sinners 
that we are all in need of grace, that we are saved then not by following the law, works-based righteousness. We're saved by grace. And that led Paul into Romans chapter 6 and 7, which is really all about the, the question of the law, like what then is our relationship to the law of God? If we're saved by grace, not by works, what about the law? That's what he's been working through. And so last week we saw that Paul says, look, one of the purposes for the law is to actually incite sin in you. It's to show you how sinful you really are. To point you then toward a Savior who is Jesus Christ. And so now the question becomes, verse 13, did that which is good, he says, then bring death to me? Is the law good? Did the law bring death? Good question, isn't it? He quickly answers it. He says, by no means. Meaning the law is not to blame for your spiritual death. It's our sinful response to the law that is the problem. So look at verse 13. He says, it goes on to say, it was sin producing death in me. Somebody say sin. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Isn't that interesting? Sin needs to be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What might become sinful beyond measure? Paul's not referring to himself or you and I in particular. He's actually referring to sin. Sin is the operating sub subject here. Sin is to be shown to be exceedingly sinful. Like really, really bad. Sin is actually sin. Verse 14. For, here's the reason we know that the law is spiritual. What he means by that is the law is good. It came from God himself. There's nothing that comes from God that's bad. Yeah. So the law is good. It's spiritual. But here's the problem. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And sin produced death in us. Meaning when the law hits us, Sin begins to grow. Sin begins to deceive us. Sin begins to manipulate us. Sin festers in us like a terrible wound. We are then rebels by nature. That's what we're seeing here. But the law is good. The law shows us what is good. Like God has in his law shown us, church, the good life. Let me just give you an example. Husbands, love your wife. That's good. Wives, love your husbands, honor your husbands. That's good. These are good things. If we follow God's law, good will come. It promises life. Yet, because of our sin nature, it incites the sinner to rebellion against God. Sin is the problem. Meaning, why does a man who's got a perfectly good wife go online and find images of other women. Why does a woman who's got a perfectly good husband go to work and just enjoy all of those conversations with other men because of the way they make her feel? Why do 
kids who have godly parents that genuinely love them, why do kids disobey and rebel? It's sin, church. That's what he's saying. It's sin. And, and it's, it's, this, this happens in this way to show us that sin is exceedingly sinful. Why are we so often prone to complain? Oh, we've been blessed with the good graces of God, yet we look at them and we say they're not enough. I want more. I'm not happy with my life. I'm not satisfied with the things of God. I'm not satisfied with the things He's given me. I want more. I want more. I want more. Always grumbling. Always complaining. Never happy. No joy. What causes us to look at the gifts of God and say, that's not enough? It's sin, church. What causes the boy on Mervo's campus this past week to pull a trigger and kill another, uh, another boy? Like what causes us to have the audacity to take another's life? The life of a peer over an argument. I've read of children murdering the parents, a mother killing her children. What causes these kinds of horrors? It's sin. It's to show us that sin is exceedingly sinful causes us to do the craziest things we're found in places that we never dreamed we would be found we, we, we dream about things and fantasize about things that are ultimately destructive for us it makes no sense why Humanity are rebels against God. Now, the, the social scientists and the news outlets of our day, both left and right, try to diagnose this problem, and they come up with all of their various ideas and reasons as to what the problem is with humanity. Some point at parenting. It's the family. It's the breakdown of the family. It's the community. It's the government. We can have all of our various theories, and in some ways, it is all of the above, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is then baked into the institutions that we create. There is systemic sin that causes such destruction in lives, and at the same time, it is also very personal. It's very personal. It's also in us. Now, the major news networks will never publish this, would they? They'll never, never tell us hey, sin is the problem. Why? It's because if we admit that sin is ultimately the problem of humanity, then we have to admit to this concept of God, the Bible, Christ. And we won't do that because sin is also blinding. It causes us to be ignorant. Sin is destructive at every level, in every way. 
Now, here's the thing. We don't just get saved and never again struggle with sin. When we look at Romans chapter 7 here, there is a 2,000-year-old debate on Romans 7. Is Romans 7 talking about the Christian or the non-Christian? Meaning, is Paul writing of his current life as a Christian? Or is Paul writing of his maybe early Christian life? Or is Paul here writing about his life before he became a Christian? Is he here talking about the regenerate Christian or is he talking about the unregenerate Christian? Meaning, when Paul says, the things I do want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do do. Who's saying that? Now, some throughout Christian history have said that uh, it's, he's referring here to the unregenerate. Uh, they would say that what Paul uses this language of death and slavery. And they would say Paul, what Paul is, uh, has already articulated is that we are alive in Christ. We've died to our old self, raised to new life in Christ, and so he can't be referring then to the Christian here. And also Paul has already articulated the fact that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are freed. But then on the other side, Christians say, well, wait a second. We see here that Paul says, I want to follow God. I desire to follow the law. It's written on my mind to obey the law of God. A non-Christian wouldn't say that. It sounds like a Christian talking. And if you were to read all of old church history documents on this, like you would find that the early church fathers said it was the unregenerate, non-Christian. Uh, Augustine believed it was the unregenerate, and, and then he debated with uh, Pelagius, and uh, Pelagius said it was also the unregenerate, and Augustine changed his mind and said, actually, I think he's referring to the Christian here. Uh, uh, the reformers, John, John Calvin and Martin Luther, argued that this is re, uh, the mature Christian in Romans 7. Arminians tended to lean toward the unregenerate, while some said it was the Christian. Uh, then came along the pietist movement, the holiness movement, and uh, there's a number of different views here. Some said that this is the uh, Christian who has not yet been sanctified. This would be sort of the Pentecostal movement where you need like a, a second blessing. Uh, that, that would be the teaching there. And so that's, that's something that church history has offered as a thought. Does, does the Spirit come in kind of two different ways? Uh, and then uh, others have said, well, it's, it's, it's sort of this in-between state of becoming a, a, not, not being a Christian and becoming a Christian. And so my point is this. Uh, you don't have to remember all of that. It won't be on the exam. My point is just simply this. It's been debated. And I think we can have differences on this. I'm going to take a side, but if you twist my arm really, really hard, you might get me to change my mind, all right? I don't think so, though. I've thought a good bit about it this week. I think Paul here is referring to the Christian. I think he's referring to the regenerate Christian. Let me tell you why. First, when you look at Romans... Chapter 7, verse 5, he talks about the unregenerate, while we were living in the flesh. And then in verse 6, he goes on to say 
that now we are released from the law serving in the new way of the Spirit. And I think what Paul is doing in verses 13 through 25 is showing what that serving in the new way of the Spirit looks like and what it doesn't look like. I think he's giving us an explanation of this new life that we live where we realize the struggle. I believe this is not even referring to a weak Christian. Because I don't think weak Christians think this deeply about your sin. And I think you need to grow up. I think he's referring to mature Christians. Who realize, first, how deeply we struggle with sin. How, 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 how we just don't get beyond that lure and that temptation and that pull. And without, then, the help of God, we have no ability to overcome our sin. Also, Paul is ta talking here in the first person. Uh, or, I'm sorry, not first person. He is talking first person. He's talking in the present tense. It seems like, it, like the most natural reading is he's talking about a present reality. Additionally, in verse 18, he says, I have the desire to do what's right. A non-Christian wouldn't have that, at least biblically speaking. We can have good desires as non-Christians, but not at, at our core as it relates to pleasing God. Verse 20, he goes on to say, it is no longer I who do it. Meaning he's, he's referencing here his new creation status. Recognizing that he is a new man, yet he is still wrapped in this old flesh. In verse 22, he tells us that he delights in the law of God, in his inner being. Well, that sounds like the law written on our hearts as regenerate believers. In verse 25, we see him summarize it with spiritual fight language. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, so then, meaning let me summarize this, why I'm so thankful for Jesus. I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So then, Jesus has freed me, thanks be to God. So then, I fight. And what's written on my mind doesn't always match what my hands and my feet and my mouth and every other part of my body wants to do. So how do we fight? First, admit our responsibility. Or I'm sorry, accept our responsibility. Secondly, admit our instability as Christians. Admit our instability. I, I use the word instability because James chapter 1 verse 8 tells us that the double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Let me give you an example of double-mindedness. Americans, the average American, believe it or not, throughout their lifetime will spend $100,000 on fitness. That's a lot of money. Fitness. Fitness. Working out. Exercise. Foreign concept? $34 a month. The average American spends $34 a month on a gym membership. The average American spends $33 a month on 
clothes to work out in. The athletic clothing industry is a $100 billion industry every year. Yet, only two out of 10 Americans work out. Double-minded. It seems like, it seems, seems as if we like athletic clothing. You know, we like workout clothing more than we like to work out. Double-minded. Let me give you some other examples. You want to wake up early. That's your goal. You're trying to wake up earlier, but you keep going to bed late. You want to write something, maybe a blog or an article or even a book. But every time you sit down and have the time to do it, you're watching TikTok. Double-minded. You want to spend more time with your friends. You want to have quality friendships and quality time with your friends. And every time your friends say, hey, do you want to do something? You say, eh, nah, I'm busy. And you're just watching TikTok. Now, a little more serious, you want to get healthy, but you keep going to Dunkin' Donuts. Lay off alcohol, but you keep buying six-packs. Meaning, double-mindedness is this, our actions, what we're doing, doesn't match what we think we want to do. I wonder if anybody can resonate with this. Paul says, I don't understand my own actions. I confuse myself. I don't do what I want to do. And what I do do are the things that I hate. Verse 15. Do you know this feeling, Christian? Meaning God awakens us up to some level of obedience. Like there's a part of me that really wants to follow God in this way. Yet I find myself going back to the broken cistern. I find myself taking another drink of that salt water of sin. It's as if I take two steps forward and eight steps back. It's as if the chains of sin have been released and then I walk back down into the dungeon and I don't know why, but I put the chains back on because I like the way they feel. It's as if the burden of sin was lifted at Calvary and then I pick it up and I put it back on because I miss the way it feels. Verse 19, Paul says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Does that sound familiar? He then explains himself in verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, he, don't, don't take this like uber literally. Paul is taking responsibility. He's not saying that he's not responsible for the sin, but he's saying that this new crea creation of who he is is in some way at odds with what he's actually doing. It's sin. That's the problem. So, verse 21, I find it to be a law. Now, here's what he refers to as the law of sin in verse 23 and 25. He says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand. Cain, 
Watch, watch yourself. For sin is lying crouching at the door. For, verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war. Somebody say, waging war. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. If we're going to be honest, I think what we have to admit is that sometimes God's law feels too strict. And we, we, we think about, man, it would be nice if we could just be freed for one day from the strictness of God's rules so that I can freely indulge in all of my cravings. And we go back to Romans chapter 1, and we're reminded of our cravings as a human race for sexual impurity, lusting after somebody that is not yours, or sexual intimate union with the same sex, or envy, or murder, or strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of ways of doing evil, disobedient to parents. Romans 1. Now the skeptic comes along and says, well, wait a second, see, this is the problem with you Christians. It's because when we were back in Romans 1, you said that this refers to those who have rejected the gospel. This refers to those who are not Christians. And so you Christians claim to be changed by the Spirit of God, yet you're saying you still struggle with this stuff. You read Romans 1 and you're like, man, I wish I could say that never describes me, none of that. So what is it? Well, here's the answer. Is this. We are in Romans 7. But Romans 7 is not the end of our story. We live in Romans 7. We'll always live in Romans 7. But it's not the end of our story. It's calling us to confess our double-mindedness. It's calling us to not be people who sin in an uninhibited fashion. You know, if you are a skeptic here wondering this about Christians, I would just say this. Christians grieve their inability to, to conform to the image of God. Christians mourn the fact that our fantasies are not lining up with God's finest. And so... so we see, we see in Romans 7 then this, this competing reality that lives within us and it, it additionally calls us to recognize that, that, that Christians are not perfect. Like we don't claim perfection as Christians. We have to categorically deny that. We are not sinless and will not be sinless until that day we see Jesus face to face. So one application, church, is this, is that, is that there, is, there is no simple fix to your sin. I'm sorry to say that. I wish I could give you a shot. Let's all come forward and get the simple fix. You know, some people, I think, offer simple fixes. You know, just, just stop trying and give it over to God. Boy, if it was that easy. 
go from being a Romans 7 Christian to be a Romans 8 Christian. Man, if it was that easy. Sanctification church is not once and for all, but it's a process. Now, in our sanctification, I like the way James Boyce puts it. He says, he says is sanctification an awareness of how good we are becoming? Or is it a growing sense of how sinful we, we really are? Constantly turning and depending on Jesus. True sanctification, he argues, is the latter. What he's saying is this, is that true sanctification is not looking back in your life and thinking, man, I'm doing so well. Sure, we see progress. Yes, we give testimonies. We need to give God praise. We are not to be living under the weight and guilt and sorrow of our sin that's taken at the cross. And we see spiritual growth. And we, we confess that spirit, or we, we, we display that spiritual growth. But our spiritual growth comes as we are constantly looking inward, peeling back the layers and seeing how sinful we actually are and how much we need to depend on Jesus. Somebody say amen. amen. So how do we fight against sin? First, accept our responsibility. Second, admit our instability. And third, know our inability. Know our inability. Sometimes we try to fight our sin in the same way that my iPhone tries to charge itself. So for example, I, my, my, my phone wasn't charging and I realized my, my cord, my charger cord is bad. Waking up every day, my phone was dead. So I finally got a new charger for my phone and I was happy at night to plug my phone into the charger and I woke up the next morning and to my despair, the phone had not charged. And in despair, I bowed my head. And I, I, I realized in this moment, I'm starting beginning to believe that the problem is not the charger, the problem is my phone. Until I looked down and realized I never plugged the charger into the outlet. <laughs> you see, I learned something that day. My phone can't charge itself any more than I can change myself. This is what Paul's trying to say. We, can't, we don't have the ability to change ourselves. Look at verse 18. He says, nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Notice he says, that is in my flesh. He's qualifying his statement. Of course, there is good that dwells in Paul. He knows that the Holy Spirit of God lives in him. So he's, he's putting a big, big asterisk there. And he's saying, wait, let me explain what I mean by this. I'm talking about my flesh. He's a new creature, dead under the law, alive unto God, yet nothing good dwells in his flesh. Meaning, while we are saved, we are still wrapped in this corrupt body. Now, this is not to pit our soul against our body, as if our bodies are literally, actually evil and bad. Paul's using our bodies as a metaphor. He's using our bodies as a metaphor to say that while I'm saved... I'm still struggling with sin. So therefore, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. You see, the problem, church, with simple fixes is that we come up with just man-made rules to create sanctification. And we use guilt and law and shame to try to change people. 
and all sorts of additional rules. I'm not going to drink it. I'm not going to touch the stuff. I'm not going to even look at it. An additional rule. Don't look at it. Well, the Bible says, doesn't say don't look at wine. The Bible says don't get drunk on wine. But you see, we start creating additional rules to try to keep us from sin, and they don't work. You know, we think clothing is the problem as opposed to lust. Somebody say, hmm. <laughs> and then we try to sanctify our social media accounts by sharing the right thing and posting the right thing lest we get canceled or lest we get called out on something and using all of the correct terms and, and then getting into arguments with people and, and believing that if we can just beat the truth, what we believe to be right, down somebody's head that they'll get it and they'll change. Whoever shouts the loudest wins the argument. You might win the argument, but the person doesn't change. You see what I'm saying? Like We can present truth. The truth will set you free. Somebody say amen. amen. The truth will set you free. Yet... The truth presented on its own without the power of the Holy Spirit working in the individual cannot create change. Not because the truth is, is bad, but because we are unable. We're unable. That's Paul's point, verse 18. He says, we don't have it, have it in us to fight. Look at verse 18. He says, for I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. Now, if anybody here would use this as an excuse to go ahead and continue in sin and say, well, look, even Paul struggled with sin. Even Paul kept giving himself over to sin. So therefore, why am I fighting against sin? I might as well just be like Paul and just give myself over to, over, over to sin. We have to stop and recognize this is, Paul is not giving us the whole story right here. Paul is talking about this this reality that he struggles with, these moments of time where he's giving into sin, where he, his, his desires don't match what he's doing, this is our reality at the same time. It's not the whole story. So for the person that says, well, I can't overcome sin, you've missed it. You've missed everything we've read in Romans. You have power. You have the ability to overcome sin. You have the Holy Spirit. You can. But then the other person comes along and says, well, I, I have overcome sin, and I am sanctified. Perfect. Look, both of these responses are not Christian. The Christian says, I read Romans 7, and this is my story. I look inside myself and I don't see the power to change. But then I look to Christ. But then I look to Christ. How do we fight? First, accept our responsibility. Second, admit our instability. Third, know our inability. And fourth, and I'm going to close here and I'm going a little longer than normal. Give me a few more minutes. I'm almost done. All right? This is a long text. It's a lot. Number four, see our Savior. See our Savior. You with me? Verse 24, let's close. He says this, wretched man that I am. Man, I wonder if you can resonate with the Apostle Paul. 
when you're going through this Romans 7 struggle, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Meaning, where can I look for help? I looked inside of me, and I see double-mindedness. I look at my hands, and my feet, and my mouth, and my eyes, and, and I see this war between my members and the law of God that is written on my heart. Who can help me? I look inside me, and I don't see the power to overcome this sin. Who can help me? Verse 25. Thanks be to God, through, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, the God-made man, Christ, our Messiah, our helper, Lord, our master. I searched all over, and I couldn't find nobody. I looked high and low, and I couldn't find nobody. Nobody greater. Nobody greater, nobody greater than him. Amen. The victory that we find in our fight against sin is found in looking to Jesus. We look to Jesus. Guys, that's the answer. All, right, all of this has been leading up to, this is my sermon. How do you fight your sin? How do we go about spiritual warfare? Answer, look to Jesus. That's it. Now somebody's going to say, well, what do you mean by that? That sounds amazing. But what do you mean by that? I mean two things. Number one, next verse, there is, no condom, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus. All right? We are saved by grace. He paid the penalty for our sin. There is no condemnation. So as we're fighting our sin, we look to Christ and we see that we are not under our guilt been forgiven at the cross. Many years ago, there was an older couple who lived in Baltimore as a neighborhood was, was becoming more violent. And this is back when they just realized that we need to lock our doors at night. They came home from church one, uh, late one night, ate a little dinner, went to bed. They did not know that a teen boy from the streets, no parents, brokenness, violence, problems, had broken into their home and was hiding. In the middle of the night, around uh, one, two in the morning, the man, husband, got up to use the restroom. He hears something. And all of a sudden, standing at the top of their narrow Baltimore staircase, he meets this boy with a gun pointed right at his face. His wife comes out and joins him. They're standing there, staring, staring at each other. The, the boy is as startled as he is. Just a moment of silence. The man says, what, what, are you, what are you doing? What do you want? The boy says, I need to eat. I want food. And then with that, the boy drops his arm, standing face to face. True story, the old man asks the boy, 
You want to go downstairs? I'll make you some food. The couple walks this boy down into their kitchen, sits him at their table from their own fridge. They start pulling things out, cooking for this boy in the middle of the night, beginning a conversation with him into the wee hours of the morning. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Let me put it this way. Christ turns his enemies into his friends. Christ feeds us out of his own resources. Christ, Christ heals us out of his own resources. Christ invites us into his home, and not only as a servant, but as family, to sit at his table, to commune and to dine with him. Why? Because on that day, Jesus took the judgment for our sin on the cross. He took all of it. He paid the price that we deserved. He rose from the dead. And he invites us to turn from our sins and to trust him. And what does that look like? It says, yes, I will sit down at your table and eat of your food to receive you. Not because of who I am, not because of what I bring to the table. I was actually your enemy. But while we we were enemies, Christ died for us. No condemnation in Christ. Secondly, as we look to Christ, we, we also look to him for our sanctification. What I mean by that is this. Is I'm, I, I truly believe that what Paul is saying through Jesus Christ our Lord is that Christ really is enough. All right? What does it look like, practically speaking, to, to, to look to Christ in order to overcome sin? Well, it means to participate in all of the means of God's grace. Regular daily devotions, regular Bible reading, regular prayer, regular church attendance, going to uh, men's and women's fellowship, Bible study, uh, uh, going to an accountability group, getting a one-on-one disciple, getting a one-on-one accountability point, like all of the regular things where we are pointing each other to his word and the word is all about Christ. What we see is that Christ is lifted up and made more glorious than our sin. That's how we overcome sin. By continuing to go into his word and to see Jesus. See, so often we fight our sin through all kinds of various creative strategies. And sometimes that's helpful. For certain sins, we need particular strategies to help overcome them you know, various apps and accountability and meetings and different things. But I want to just say this. I think Christians need to focus less on their sin and more on Christ. And when we see the glories of Christ, the things of this world grow strangely dim. Our desires to sin just grow strangely dim. In the light of His glory and grace, As the story goes on, that morning, this old couple in Baltimore City took this kid down to the city and they began adoption. Brought him in as their own child. This is our story, church. We are brought into the house of God. 
We are brought into His family, invited to His his table, changed by God's grace, adopted into His family. Is this your story? And if it is, you understand that we have all of the glories of Christ, yet we still live in Romans 7. God could have. God had the power to save us and immediately take us out of this world, give us new bodies that do do not struggle with sin. Isn't it amazing, first, that God does everything for His own glory, and secondly, that God has left you in your body prone to sin. Meaning for, for all of your life, you're battling and fighting different kinds of strategies. The devil is wily. He's coming at you all kinds of ways, and you're going to battle with that until you die. Isn't it amazing that that's your reality, number one, and number two, God does everything for his own glory. What that tells us is that there's something about being Romans 7 kind of Christian that actually brings glory to God. And it makes sense Think about it. In my own life, I think to myself, I've been a Christian for so many years, yet I'm still struggling with these stupid sins. And then I look to God's grace. He still loves me. He still loves me. He's proving to me over and over and over for the last, man, 35 years of being a Christian that I'm saved by grace, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. We're saved by grace at the beginning of our relationship with God. We're saved at grace by grace at the, uh, at the day we die. And for all of eternity, we stand on God's grace. I wonder if we can praise God for His grace. I wonder if anybody would say, look, I would have already given up on myself by now. But God hasn't given up on me. I wonder if anybody can say, look, I I, I understand that I keep struggling with sin, yet even my sin doesn't keep God from loving me. Church, this is our story. This is our song. It's the beautiful, wondrous grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we stand on. Do you know Him? Do you know Jesus Christ? Are you found in Christ? Are you looking to Christ now? Oh, look into His glories. Look into His wonders. Every day, position yourself toward the face of Jesus. And as we gaze on His beautiful grace, as we learn more about Jesus, may our desires grow strangely dim for the world. And may we run after Christ and His holiness. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Christ truly is enough. We thank You that our sanctification doesn't come just through trying harder, through law-based sanctification, through picking ourselves up by our bootstraps, We thank you that you've given us Christ and all of his wonders through his word. I pray that you would allow us to be a people who look daily at Jesus and as a result that we would find that we are freed to fight. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.